65 million. That's the number of people thought to be living with long COVID worldwide. In the United States, estimates range from 7 million to 23 million. Yet, these are all likely underestimating it. How is that possible? I mean, with all we know about COVID-19, how it works, how it affects the body, how to treat it, how could it possibly be the case that we can't say the same thing about long COVID? Well, aside from the usual COVID underreporting, testing, diagnosing issues we've grown familiar with, one big inherent problem is that there's actually no singular condition as we know it called long COVID. Rather, a diagnosis comes from looking at medical history as well as lingering symptoms, which can vary person to person. These symptoms were better defined and whittled down in a May 2023 paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. According to that study, the symptoms that often present as post-acute sequelae of SARS-CoV-2 infection, a fancy way of saying long COVID, include the following. Chronic cough, loss of or change in smell or taste, changes in sexual desire or capacity, dizziness, brain fog, fatigue, and the intensifying of symptoms after even minor physical or mental activity, which is known as post-exertional malaise. What's interesting is that those symptoms, especially the last three, are definitive of another chronic illness, ME-CFS, or Myalgic Encephalomyelitis Slash Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. ME-CFS is incredibly complex and complicated, and it involves multiple systems in the body. The Centers for Disease Control says that there are three core symptoms required for an ME-CFS diagnosis. There's that extreme fatigue that leads to a drop in activity level, and the post-exertional malaise that feels like a crash. ME-CFS is also characterized by sleep problems, like having trouble falling or staying asleep, or feeling exhausted, even after a full night of rest. Patients also have reported excruciating hypersensitivities to things like sound, touch, and light. And between ME-CFS and long COVID, there's even more similarities besides their symptoms alone. Both conditions have been more frequently observed in women. Women are two to four times more likely to have ME. And numbers vary, but one study says that during the first two years of the pandemic, women made up 63% of long COVID patients. For the mechanism behind long COVID, Dr. Akiko Iwasaki of Yale University offers four theories. One idea is called autoimmunity. After an acute infection, one that develops quickly and usually resolves just as fast, the body's disease-fighting immune cells can end up attacking your own healthy cells. It's theorized that the mechanisms that make women's immune systems better at responding to infections initially actually increase their vulnerability to longer-term autoimmune disorders like type 1 diabetes and long COVID. According to Dr. Mady Horning of Columbia University, this idea of a really active immune response early on followed by immune exhaustion could also be at play in ME-CFS. The next theory suggests that following the infection, dormant viruses can reawaken and disturb our body's friendly bacterial microbiome, causing inflammation and our body's overall balance, or homeostasis, to be thrown off completely. 
The Iwasaki lab also posits that our tissues can be damaged and inflamed after an initial acute infection, in such a way that results in, quote, clotting or scarring in places that are difficult to reach and repair. And the final idea has to do with what Dr. Iwasaki calls persistent viral loads and remnants. Even months after an infection, viruses can stay hidden away in tissue and cause inflammation. They're not always detectable with nose swabs either, since they can hide in unreachable internal organs. Now, these four theories, autoimmunity, dormant viruses, tissue damage, and hidden viruses, they're all ongoing after the initial infection, thus the term post-acute infection syndrome, which not only covers long COVID, but can also include a host of other conditions like chronic Lyme, chronic Epstein-Barr, Guillain-Barr syndrome, and fibromyalgia. As Drs. Akiko Iwasaki, Jan Chautka, Faraj Jonsari, and Mady Horning write, the similarities all these conditions share, quote, suggest a unifying pathophysiology, which is the way the body responds to a particular disease. This unifying pathophysiology needs to be further explored and researched so that these post-infectious chronic disabilities can be managed, treated, and understood. For people who don't have it, it can be difficult to grasp what it's like to live with conditions like long COVID or ME-CFS. We know that it's fatigue so debilitating that it can leave a person bedridden for most of their day or even their lives. We know that it can lead to gastrointestinal problems that affect people's eating and drinking. And we know that it can lead to death in multiple ways. Though ME itself rarely causes death, perhaps due to a lack of understanding and reporting, it can be a risk factor for cardiovascular disorders, worsen concurrent conditions like cancer, and lead people to commit suicide. Many patients have reported neglect or even abuse from their healthcare providers, who, for example, may prescribe something called graded exercise therapy, or GET. This is a type of treatment where physical activity starts off slow, but increases over time. It's based off this idea that ME patients might be too afraid to pursue exercise on their own for fear of hurting themselves. But when you remember that one hallmark symptom is post-exertional malaise, you can see why this treatment is so controversial. It's no wonder, then, that patient groups and many health agencies like the CDC and the Mayo Clinic do not recommend GET for treating things like ME-CFS. Many have also reported doctors telling them that their case is purely psychiatric or psychosomatic and that the root cause of their problems is all in their heads. For instance, ME patients Sophia Mertza and Karina Hansen were both forcibly removed from their homes in order to undergo psychiatric or brain injury treatment. In 2005, Sophia Mertza died at the age of 22, becoming the first person in the United Kingdom whose cause of death was listed as ME. Specifically, she had died from acute kidney injury brought on by ME. The attribution of her death to ME prompted patient advocacy groups to suggest that the condition is not psychological, it's neurological. Also, when 21-year-old Maren Crofts died in 2018, an inquest concluded her death to be caused by starvation resulting from ME, which she had fought since the age of 15. In life, Many doctors told Marin and her family that her illness was psychological and suggested that she was just suffering from hysteria. In death, 
she and her pain were vindicated. To begin to understand what life looks like living with a chronic illness like ME-CFS, as well as dealing with the stigma surrounding it, I talked to a patient named Perry Ann Norton, who lives here in Santa Barbara County. Here's our conversation. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience today? My name is Perry Norton, and I live in Santa Barbara. Since August of 2020, I've been on disability because of my illness. Um, my, I, my former business before I sort of was forcibly retired was a, a voiceover person, and I did a lot of audio production, podcasts, and radio stuff. But my husband and I have both been involved in the music, uh, in music for decades, uh, going back to the 80s in New York City. And we always wanted to get back to music. So we, in the last year, started a record label. We have a recording studio in, in Santa Barbara that a lot of people don't know about. We purposely sort of stay under the radar. But in any event, um, the studio is called the 805 Room and the record label is called Voracious Records. And we just signed our first artist whose EP will be coming out in the fall. So that's what I do when I can, <laughs> that makes sense. I won't lie. It's been a, it's been a tremendous struggle. And um, my battery life, as it were, is about a third of what a normal person's is. So even though I'm speaking to you now, and I probably sound relatively normal, and I do these things during the day, by two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm back in bed. That's, that's, my body literally will just shut down. Um, It's as though whatever energy envelope I have is just used up at that point. So I go back to bed, I get up around dinner time, and then my day kind of starts all over again. So doing those, you know, it sounds great that I'm doing these things, but um, it's on such a limited basis. And um, that is one of the, one of the really tragic things about this illness. And I keep saying this illness, but um I suspect that you're really more interested in long COVID uh, well, aspect of it. No, not necessarily. You know, I know that long COVID, it's very complex and it's not really just one illness. So, you know, I appreciate your honesty and everything so far. But if you feel like, you know, it's not just long COVID, then, you know, you're the one living through this and you're the one with the most experience. So. I appreciate that, that you know that it's complicated. So in my case, I was never diagnosed with long COVID. I, there, there was no such thing as long COVID when I got diagnosed. Um, I got sick in January of 2020 with what was probably COVID, but was, you know, they weren't testing for it back then. There was no vaccine back then. It's more in hindsight, I think that that's probably what it was. It was sick for weeks. And then sort of the cold flu-like symptoms started to go away, but this unremitting exhaustion took its place. And it literally became a choice between going to get the mail at the end of my driveway or making a phone call. And that was all I could do before just going back to bed or um, I literally, I, I had to choose between bathing and, and doing the dishes or uh brushing my teeth or talking on the phone on a given day. And my entire um, energy envelope, if you will, at that point was probably about 20 minutes, maybe an hour. Um, Now I'm up to maybe 
five or six hours, but it's taken me three and a half years. So the point of that is that long COVID and myalgic encephalomyelitis are probably very related. Anthony Fauci from uh, the CDC had said there's significant overlap. There's probably some connection. There are a lot of theories about what it is and why it is, but if you have long COVID or you have ME, you don't really care because you just want some sort of answers, some way of getting better. Um, the way that the diagnosis happened was that I started to get depressed because I was so sick. I couldn't figure out why the blood work was normal. Everything seemed okay. And I thought, well, I don't want to presume that this is something that's psychological because it sure as hell didn't feel like it. But so I went to see somebody and he said, I know exactly what you have. He said, because I had Hashimoto's disease, which morphed into ME, not long COVID. This was decades before. And he said to me, there's no cure. There's no treatment. There are things that you can do to help mitigate the circumstances, but you will have to claw your way back. Those were the words he used to me. And I was so happy just to have a diagnosis at that point that I didn't really care. And then I started to learn what that meant. And I did hyperbaric oxygen therapy and I did blood infusions with ozone and oxygen. I still do glutathione infusions. I don't know why it seems to help, but it does. Um, so there are all these different things that different people try. And now my brain fog is kicking in. So I'm not exactly sure where I was going with that, but that's another really, really difficult symptom. It's It feels like you have a traumatic brain injury, or at least that's what I imagine a TBI to feel like. Um, you feel like you have jet lag and the flu 24 seven, and it does not matter how much you sleep. Uh, you just don't feel better. You don't feel rested. It's like having a, a constant hangover. Um, and another really insidious part of it, and this is, again, this is true for long COVID or ME, as I understand it, is something called post-exertion fatigue or post-exertion malaise, which everybody tells you, doctors will tell you, oh, you need more exercise. You need to get out more, you need to walk when in fact, what that often does is exacerbate your symptoms and it can actually make you worse. It can actually permanently make you worse. People really need to understand that, that just because you can't see it, um, and I'm speaking to you normally, and if you saw me in person, you'd think, well, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong with her, but something is extremely wrong in my body relative to my immune system. And whether it's that my immune system is in hyper mode and just never stops trying to get me to slow down, or if it's viral remnants that have been reactivated or, you know, any one of a half a dozen theories, it is physical. There is, there's no question that it's physical. And because you feel so lousy all the time, yeah, you can get depressed. <laughs> so that's another distinction that really needs to be made. That's why they call it, you know, the uh, in, they call it invisible illnesses right. or missing millions or, you know, whatever 
catchphrase you want to use, it's because you can't see it from the outside. And my friends would say to me early on, oh yeah, I feel tired all the time too. And it's like, you just don't get it. It's, it's beyond tired. It's like, it's the su most supreme exhaustion you could even imagine. And it just is so debilitating and it literally robs you of your life. And it's too bad that, you know, because you don't show it physically that people assume it's all in your head and it's definitely not. <laughs> I'm sure the exhaustion is such a big part of it, you know. What's the most challenging part about living with this such a debilitating illness and, you know, not just physically, but I'm sure it, it must impact you emotionally and socially as well. That's a great question. I think that the hardest part is that I used to be a type A personality. I have a, had a huge amount of energy. I was extremely motivated and driven in business. I had to shutter a business that I started from scratch after 20 years um, I've lost friends who didn't understand what was happening. And sometimes you just can't keep up with them. So you have to let them move on with their lives. Um, being able to spend time with my friends, uh, travel, um, there are major life events that I've missed because I was too ill to travel. Um, you really have to be very selective about what you what you do during a day. Um, are you going to have lunch with this person or are you going to do some things on your to-do list like laundry that have to get done and you have to make those choices every day? Um, so the hardest part is the, the amount of life that it robs you of. And, um, and that's been heartbreaking. That's the fact that I'm now able to do a little bit more has probably saved my life uh, i it's a very bleak existence if you have no hope and no help so i would say that's been the hardest part is that it robs you of all of the things that you love and you watch people going on with their lives while you're sitting there watching it and not being able to participate in it so i would say that that was the most heartbreaking part of it and still is but it's, um, I have a little bit more than I had three years ago. So I'm grateful for that. You know, I've learned so much from you and I really appreciate your time and honesty. And that last part you just mentioned about having to decide, am I going to do my laundry or am I going to see my friends today? I think a lot of us take that for granted because when you were saying that, I was thinking about like people who don't have this illness like me, I'm thinking about it in terms of time, like how much time can I devote to one thing, but I have the choice to do multiple things and I have the energy to do multiple things. And I think we really take that for granted sometimes. So, you know, that's exactly right. You couldn't have said it better or I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> said it better. That's exactly, that's really it in a nutshell. You, you, you take for granted that you have a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of time to do the things that you want to do and the things that you need to do. And those choices become very different when, you're, when your capacity is so diminished.
if you have symptoms that you can't explain, that don't go away, that are relative to, you know, exhaustion, or your heart is racing when you stand up, or you don't feel rested when you get up in the morning, day after day after day, or you feel like you absolutely have to just stop what you're doing, um, look for resources. Go to Survivor Corps. Go to uh, hashtag MEAction. Find resources. Educate yourself. Talk to your GP. If your GP dismisses you, find another person. Um, it's really important because if you if you don't pay attention to your body and what it's telling you you can and can't do, you can make yourself permanently worse. And there are people who are bedbound for life with this, and you don't you don't want to be one of those people. You don't want to be me either. Trust me. But I, again, I'm the lucky one. So find your resources, educate yourself. Don't give up. There is hope out there. There are there aren't treatments, but there are things that will help you feel better. You just have to find the ones that work for you personally. Next time, we'll learn about efforts to address these post-acute infection syndromes, starting with raising awareness. Thank you for listening. With KCSB News, I'm Joyce Chi.